Thanks, brother. Good morning, folks. My name's Dan, if we haven't met before, and uh, just a little bit of an update. Um, our first child is due on November the 3rd, so that's less than two weeks away. <laughs> so uh, I don't know, we, uh, we might be here next week, we might not, uh, we, we'll see. <laughs> now, um, just to give you an update on how that's all going to look, uh, this is the last sermon in our series on Revelation 2 to 3, uh, and so from next week onwards, by the graciousness of various friends, uh, we've got the next six weeks of sermons covered by guest preachers. So praise the Lord for that. Whether baby comes tomorrow or in a month, we're sorted. Everything is okay. It means I can finish off my master's project I'm working on as well. So everything's all good. Thank you for those who've been involved in helping with that. Thank you for those of you who've been praying. Um, it's great, great news. So next week, um, we'll have my new friend, Reese Ewing. Has anyone met Reese before? Yeah, he's from the Lakes Church. Um, he runs the Christian University Group at Arimba University. So he's going to come. I think he's preaching on evangelism. So uh, that'll be great to hear from Reese. But of course, today uh, we are going into the last of these seven letters to seven ancient churches. And uh, I want to just start with a few trivia questions. Okay, here's our first one What is Warner Salmon famous for? No takers. This is good. <laughs> good start. All right. Second question, probably easier. Kids, maybe this is something that you can get. Let's see. All right. Second question. What does Jesus look like? Kids, is that a, an easy question to answer? No. <laughs> That's a very difficult question to answer. What does Jesus look like? Well, I'll tell you an answer. Since 1941... This is what Jesus has looked like. Uh, and guess who painted this? Yeah, Warner Salmon. There you go. You've got your first two answers. Now, of course, this isn't really what Jesus looked like, is it, kids? <laughs> a a six-foot-tall white guy with wavy hair, clearly uses head and shoulders. That is, that is probably not what Jesus looked like. The Bible tells us, actually, that he was probably not much to look at. There was nothing in his appearance that attracted people to him. Um, but uh, we don't know anything else about what he really looked like. Warner Salmon painted this, though, and this has formed people's sort of perspective of Jesus for the better part of, what, 80 years now. 50 million prints in circulation of this painting. So here's, here's Warner Salmon with the original. Now, Salmon is also famous for another painting of Jesus. I'll show you it. Have you seen this one before? Yeah, there you go. This one's less famous, but, but interesting. A bunch of you are like, yeah, I've seen this. Uh, so this is called Christ Knocks at Heart's Door. And the inspiration for this painting, of course, comes from today's passage. Behold, says Jesus, I stand at the door and knock. Now, here's your third and final trivia question. Don't answer this one out loud. Just have a think. Whose heart is it? Because the popular assumption, what most people would answer is, this is the heart of an unbeliever, right? Here's someone who doesn't know Jesus, who's foreign to the things of God, and here comes Jesus and knock, knock, knock. He's inviting you to receive him by faith and, and come into your heart and become the center of your life, right? Now, that's true. Jesus is wanting to be the center of the unbeliever's life. He is wanting to save them by faith in his work. 
But interesting, this letter was not first written to unbelievers, was it? It was written to Christians. It was written to the church at Laodicea. And so the very interesting thing here is, at least the way Jesus puts it with this metaphor, he's on the outside of the church. Now, that's of course not really true. As we heard last week from Andrew, uh, Jesus is is in one sense everywhere. He's the omnipresent God, right? And he, he walks through the lampstands and he has eyes of blazing fire and he searches hearts and minds. He's not in any sense absent from any church, even the most unfaithful and wayward of churches. And yet, in this metaphor, he's inviting them to picture him as outside the door of their church, knocking. Something has gone very very wrong in Laodicea. And last week, Andrew showed us this slide. You might remember this. If you haven't um, been following along with this series, by the way, go listen to Andrew's sermon from last week. He gives a good summary of, of the whole thing. And you'll notice there, there's a bunch of churches that we've seen. Smyrna, Philadelphia, they were doing really well, even under persecution. Uh, and then there was Pergamon, Thyatira, Cetus, a bit of a mixed bag, and most churches are like that, including ours probably. Uh, but then there were also the first Ephesus and now the last Laodicea, where they were in big danger. I mean, for Jesus to say essentially that he's outside the door of the church, that's a dangerous position for a church to be in, isn't it? How did they get like this? What went so wrong? And what do they need to do about it? What do we need to do about it if we find ourselves in a similar position as individuals or as a church? Those are the questions that we're going to answer today. And the way we're going to do it is by looking first in verse 15 to 16 at the condition of the church. What are they like? Second, in verse 17, we're going to look at the cause of the problem. How did it get this way? And then finally, verse 18 onwards, we're going to look at the cure. Condition, cause, cure. Keep your Bible open. We're just going to work through those verses. But first, let's pray for the Lord's help as we dig into his word. Lord God, I'm, I'm thankful this morning for the songs that we've sang, getting to declare our, our need for you every breath, every day, every moment. I'm thankful for Joel leading us in prayer that we might be in awe of you and sit at your feet. I'm thankful for Ralph reading the word for us, inviting us to hear your voice again. And so, Lord, now as we sit, stand, kneel, however it is that we come in our hearts towards you now, Lord, we, we pray that um, you would first receive us through Christ by your grace and that you would form us by that same grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In case you've forgotten, this was the temperature at the start of the week. 18 degrees with that westerly blowing through. Uh, and then, funnily enough, just a few days earlier, this was the temperature. 32 degrees, hot as anything. Yeah, welcome to October in Australia, right? You, you finish one week in a singlet and then you start the next in a jumper. That's just how it is here. Now... With Revelation chapter 3, Jesus uses this contrast between cold and hot to talk about the spiritual condition 
of the church at Laodicea. Take a look here at verse 15. Here's what he says. I know your works. So remember, even in the metaphor, he's outside the church, but not really. He's there, he sees everything, he's present. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, verse 16, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, hand up if before today you have heard that passage before. Put your hand up. Yeah, most of us, you've been a Christian for a while, you probably have, and probably you've understood it to mean, or at least heard it explained to mean, that this is about spiritual passion. Yes? So it's, it's this idea that um, it's better for you to, be, to have like heat in your passion for Jesus, to be really convicted and follow him full on 100%, or be totally out, like totally in or totally out, totally cold towards God, doesn't exist, nothing, than to be in the lukewarm middle. Right? You've heard that explanation of this passage before. Don't sit on the fence. It's either in or out. Now, what's interesting, even though that's a popular understanding of this passage, that is probably not what Jesus is meaning to say with these words. Uh, and, and to understand really what he is meaning to say and what being lukewarm actually means, we need to do a little bit of history. So, kids, I want you to take a look up at the screen with me here. This is a map. And you can see that blue bit in the middle that says the river Lycus. That's a big body of water. And I wonder if you can have a go at saying those words that are up on the screen. There's a big one up the top that starts with H. It's a bit of a funny word. Hierapolis. Hierapolis. Down in the left, the bottom left, Laodicea. And then on the bottom right, can you say that one? Colossi. Yeah, now these were, these were three big cities that existed in what's called the Lycus River Valley. And uh, we've heard about Laodicea. That's the one we're looking at, the church we're looking at. Up in Hierapolis, really interesting, they have hot springs, natural hot springs. Have you been in a hot spring before? No. I went in one up in Darwin when I was about 12 years old. And, uh, and y your first experience of a hot spring is like, I want to be as far away from this thing as possible because you dip your toe in, you're like, no, thank you, too hot. But then as you just slowly slip in, it's like, oh, everything just, just relaxes, doesn't it? Think kids about like a nice hot bath in the middle of winter when it's really cold. It's, ah, everything warms up. And back in the ancient world, this spot in Hierapolis was thought to be like one of the premier hot springs. So people would flock from all around and they'd, they'd go, they'd get into the hot spring and they'd loosen up and, and sometimes they'd put minerals in there. And people would think this would not only heal your muscles, it would also heal your sickness. Okay, That's what Hierapolis is known for. They're hot springs, they're natural hot springs. Down in the southeast, you've got, which city was it? Colossi, very good, Colossi. And uh, they're known for their water as well, but not their hot water. They're known for their cold springs. They have a natural cold spring, which might not seem like a big deal today because, of course, if the water goes out at home, what do you do? Just go down to Coles and buy a big 10-litre camping thing of, of natural water and you're good, no problem. But uh, in the ancient world, there's no such thing as the water going out. <laughs> you don't have pipes of water to your home. Uh, if you have access to a 
natural cold spring, then you are made in the shade, right? Like you've, you've got access to the most important thing of life. Uh, and imagine coming in from hot farming work during the day and you've got like a, an icy glass of water to drink. In the ancient world, that's an absolute luxury. That's what Colossi is known for. They're cold water springs. So, here you go. Hot Hierapolis, known for their hot springs. Cold Colossi, known for their cold water springs. Uh, what about Laodicea? Well, they had a water spring which was not too hot, not too cold. It was non-existent. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, uh, they had no natural hot springs of their own. And what that meant was they had to pipe water in from elsewhere. Okay, so they'd have these these big aqueducts that were under the ground and then you know, water would go along for kilometers and kilometers. And then it would come out at the surface near the city in these big stone barrel pipes and and would sit under the hot sun for, again, hundreds of meters, something like that. Now, you can imagine if you live in Laodicea, you don't have the same quality of water as they have up in Hierapolis or Colossae. And, and the irony of this is from Laodicea, you can see Hierapolis right? Like straight across the valley, you can see people getting into the hot spring. And, and in Colossae, it's like literally from here in Wyoming to Umina. That's how far away it is. But, but that's far enough for the water to just tank in quality. Uh, the, the first thing that people in Laodicea complained about was that their water was filled with sediment. It was dirty. It was like petrol station coffee, okay? It would come along the pipes, it would pick up all the mucky, dirty stuff, and then that's what you would drink. Yuck. The second thing that they complained about, guess what, is that it was lukewarm. And you can imagine, the water comes from Hierapolis. It's boiling hot. It's great for a bath. By the time it reaches Laodicea, it's lost its heat. You can imagine that cold, refreshing, beautiful water from Colossae. It sat in the stone barrel pipes under the hot sun for hours before it gets drank. It's lost its refreshing coolness. What's Jesus saying to the church? Well, imagine this. It's that 18-degree day last Monday. The westerly's blown in. It's freezing cold. You get home from a long day out somewhere. Maybe you've been at work. Maybe you visited Sydney. I don't know. You come home, and someone very, very kind has left a coffee for you on the bench. Maybe a partner, maybe your friends drop around. There it is. And you're just like, I'm freezing cold. I didn't bring a jumper today because who thought that it was going to be this cold? And you go and you pick up the coffee. You're like, ha ha. And then you have a drink. And as, as soon as it touches your lips, you realize, oh, like that's lukewarm. That's been sitting out for half an hour. So what do you do? Pour it down the sink. Make a new coffee with your, your kettle. Or imagine this. It's a few days earlier. 32 degree heat, okay? You've been out working under the sun. You've been mowing the lawn. Don't do that. <laughs> but you did. You made the big mistake. And in you come, and once again, there's the water. A friend has put it there. Your partner's put it there. Um, it's got a little lime wedge on the top and a straw. You're thinking, that's exactly what I'd like. And you pick it up, and oh, like this is the same temperature that I am. <laughs> this is not helping. Actually, this is making me feel worse because as I drink it, it's mixing in. It just feels gross. So what do you do? Pour it down the sink, get a new one, put some ice in it. What's Jesus saying to the church at Laodicea? 
is saying, you're no good for heat. You're no good for, for relaxing and restoration like the, the uh, water at Hierapolis. You're no good for refreshment as the cold water at Colossae. Actually, you're useless. You're useless. You don't have a use. I'm coming to you expecting that you'd be able to do something, but you're not. I'm coming to you. You're not growing. You're not persevering. You're not serving. You're not seeking me. You're just like this big amorphous lump that I try to sort of push and nothing happens. He's saying, you are useless to me. In fact, the condition at Laodicea is so bad that he says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, this problem is obviously worse than just one of, oh, you need to be a bit more fired up for Jesus, isn't it? If he came and said, you need to be more passionate, you know, that's one problem. If Jesus came and said, actually, you are useless to the purposes of God, oh my goodness, imagine hearing that. That is what the church at Laodicea hears from Jesus. And then I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And that's a scary thing, isn't it? Jesus is, is weighing up their spiritual condition and he's sort of going, well, since you have no use for the purposes of God... I'm about to tip you down the sink. I'm about to spit you out. He says this even to regular churchgoers, to people who identify as Christians. That's the condition at Laodicea. It's serious. It's dangerous. Now, how did they get like this? What do we need to look out for so that we don't end up like this? That's the question of the cause. Take a look with me at verse 17. For, so notice here, Jesus is giving the reason. How did they end up like this? For, for you say, I am what? Rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Why are they useless to the purposes of God? Because they think they've got everything that they need. They think that they're sorted. They think that, they're self-sufficient. In other words, they think that they don't need God. Now, once again, this makes sense when you think about Laodicea as a city. Uh, at one point, there was this massive earthquake that rocked the, the Lycus River Valley. Okay, and, and all of those cities that we just saw, um, they were decimated by this earthquake. It was in 60 AD, so 30-odd years before uh, this letter was written. And so the Roman government... Uh, they came along, they, they got a bunch of money out of the budget, and they went to each of these cities and offered like massive, massive donations to get the city rebuilt. That was the Roman Empire, right? They, they wanted to make sure every city was prospering because it reflected back on their image. So they come along to Hierapolis, and they're like, here's this massive kitty of money. And Hierapolis goes, thank you so, so much. They go to Colossae, here's the money. And Colossae goes, we needed this, thank you, you're our saviour. Right? They come along to Laodicea, and Laodicea goes, Oh no, we're cool. We don't need your money. Kids, would you ever reject free money <laughs> that someone gives you? <laughs> That's what Laodicea did. The government came with this massive pay packet to help them rebuild their city. And they go, No, we got enough. We can do it ourselves. And they did. 
They rebuilt the city. It returned to its former glory. That's how rich they are, but also the attitude beneath it, that's how self-sufficient they are. And so it makes sense for them to say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, I don't need a thing. But here's the principle, friends. Self-sufficiency leads to spiritual poverty. I'll say it again. Self-sufficiency leads to spiritual poverty. If you want the kid-friendly version of that, if you think I've got it all, then you'll think you won't need God. If you think I've got it all, then you think you don't need God. Right? If we have plenty of stuff, if we're generally pretty secure, generally pretty happy, we feel like we don't need God. And that's not just true for Laodicea, is it? It's true for those wealthy people out there. You know the ones. The ones who have so much money that they don't need to worry about a thing. So much security. Why would they need God? Cristiano Ronaldo. Gino Reinhardt. Right? Mark Zuckerberg. Those wealthy people out there. Who else could we put on the list? Well, I found a tool online this week where you plug in your income and then it tells you what percentile uh, you sit at of like income earners in the world. All right? So I just found the median Australian wage. So the sort of thing that most of us in this room, if you're working full-time, are within a shout of, of earning, okay? Plugged it in. Top 5% of income earners in the world. Isn't that crazy? Top 5%. So if you get 20 people in a room from around the world, chances are you're the richest. And that's when you just think about income. Add to that wealth. I mean, do, do you have a car? Do you have a, a roof over your head every night? Uh, do you have that kind of security that's, that's, I know where I'm going tonight? Uh, do you have food on the table every night? Maybe you have two cars, right? We do. All of that factors in as well and, and, and puts us well within that top few percent of wealthiest people in the world. Easy to forget that in a cost of living crisis, isn't it? And yet don't forget the principle. Self-sufficiency often leads to spiritual poverty. One guy puts it this way, too much of the good life ends up being toxic, deforming us spiritually. Because if I generally feel like I've got everything I need, what room is there for God? If I, I don't really need him to help me, things are pretty good. <laughs> I don't really need him to change me because I'm happy as I am. I don't really need him to, to guide me. I can work it out myself. I don't really need him to satisfy me because I've got plenty to enjoy already. And what's the result? Jesus says, I find you lukewarm. I find you useless to the purposes of God. I find you unresponsive and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Because God is not an optional add-on for our lives, right? He is the creator of everything. We need him. We depend on him for our very existence. 
He upholds everything by the word of his power. That's talking about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1. He upholds everything by the word of his power. The reason you go on existing moment by moment is because Jesus wills it. Right? And so imagine, imagine um, uh, Daniel is, is about to, well, he's just turned one, hasn't he? And sometime pretty soon, he's going to say his first words. Imagine if his first words to Joel and to Emma were, I don't need you. You'd go, first of all, that's ridiculous. <laughs> but secondly, you'd go, that's offensive. <laughs> right? But that's, that's what we say to God, the creator of all, the one who birthed us into existence. When we live this way, as if we don't need him to help us, change us, guide us, satisfy us, save us. That is offensive to a holy God. That's why he says, I will spit you out. And in other words, unless something changes, then Jesus is going to come. He's going to discipline the church at Laodicea. And we've seen this over and over with the, the letters, haven't we? In Ephesus, he said, you, you've got to recover the love that you had at first. Otherwise, I'm going to come and take your lampstand. You're no longer going to be a church. Uh, to uh, Pergamum, he'd said he'd come with a sword. To Thyatira... He said that some of them would get sick and even die to Sardis. He said, beware, I'm going to come like a thief unless you repent. This has been a common theme. He's going to come and discipline. And some of us need to hear that warning this morning, friends. Because remember, this passage is written for the church. It's written for us. It's written for those of us who claim to be Christians. So, are you thinking, I don't really need God? Like... I've got it all together. I'm fine. Is that you? Or perhaps, and it can be more subtle than that. That's very obvious, right? But it can be more subtle. Are you thinking something more like, well, God is, God is like my friend. He's not pushy. He doesn't, he doesn't tell me what to do. But he's someone who's there to lend a hand when I need him. Right? He's only a prayer away. God is like a friend that I can call on. But most of the time, I'm fine. Don't need him. Is that you? Or is it, I wake up every morning and I'm barely thinking about God and then, you know, the day is just, it's gone. And then I look back and I go, gee, God, God really was just this tiny, small part of my experience today. Is that you? Or is it more like, I mean, I'm not a sinner I just make mistakes. <laughs> it's not a big deal. You know, it's not like I need forgiveness or anything. Look, God knows how much I need this thing. God knows how important this thing is, this, this possession, this relationship, whatever it is. And I know that it's not the sort of thing that generally he wants people to have, but he knows how much I need it. Is that you? Because, friends, beware. That's the sort of thing you'd hear at Laodicea. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. This might even be the cause of the end of your faith if you let it keep playing out. If that's you, what do you need to do? What do we need to do? We come to the cure. We've seen the condition, we've seen the cause. What's the cure? Very simply, it starts with realizing how much we need God. 
We need to see reality for what it is. Verse 17. Read the rest of this verse with me. For, for you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Huh. Imagine getting that on your school report card. That's not fun. <laughs> but this is just reality. The, the Laodicean church think they're self-sufficient. What's the reality? They're not. That's what it's saying. And those last three words there, um, uh, where is it? Um, uh, poor, blind, naked. Laodicea was actually famous for three things. First, they were famous for their wealth, obviously. Remember, they rejected the government's pay packet. Secondly, they were famous for um, their medicine. And they had a particular medicine, a salve for eyes that was supposed to heal. It was like they were ancient optometrists, basically. The third thing they were famous for was fine clothing. Uh, they believed that that put them on the map. They were particularly famous for like really high-end, woolen, spun clothing. And so Jesus here is saying, hey, you know, you think that you're so rich that you have everything you need. Actually, you're poor. He's saying, you think that your medical prowess is what gets you what you need. No, actually, even though you're very good at fixing people's eyes, you're blind. And you think it's your fine woolen clothes that put you on the map. How skilled you are. No, actually, you're naked. See how he overturns all of the things that they put their sufficiency in? And again, if you think about it, it's the same for us. The things that put us in the top 5%, our money, our wealth. I mean, we know how quickly these things can fail us, don't we? Like I said, cost of living crisis. Probably if you're a bit like me, you've been at least a bit stressed over the last little period of time. These things so quickly desert us, friends. Uh, what about something like our jobs? I mean, some of you have known the pain of redundancy. Our jobs are just something we take for granted until we don't have them anymore. Or what about something like our relationships? People that we rely on, that we think are always going to be there, can suddenly disappear or fail to meet our expectations. Our brains, our skills, our technology, all these things are limited. And not to mention, even in the good times, we wouldn't have any of these things if not for God. I mean, ask the question, how did everything get here? <laughs> At one point in Israel's history, they're about to enter the promised land. It's after the, you know, the 40 years in the wilderness, sort of discipline for their sin. But they're about to enter. And, and at that moment, they're so grateful, they're so thankful, but God warns them. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm going to put it up in the screen. Uh, you can grab it in your own Bibles if you want. Deuteronomy 8, verse 17 to 18. He warns the people of Israel, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. For it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Key phrase there, remember the Lord your God. Everything you've done, everything you have, is only because God has given you a working mind, a working body, uh, common grace to be able to do things in his world. Right? Anything could vanish in an instant. Everything is a gift from God. Either way, 
we'd have nothing without God. We'd only be poor, blind and naked. That's reality. Which is why Jesus then goes on in verse 18 and he says to the church in Laodicea, I counsel you. I counsel you like a friend who comes and just says, I've got to say something serious to you. This is the advice you need to hear. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Keywords there, two of them, from me. Buy from me. Don't rely on your wealth. The wealth that your city is famous for, come to me. Come to me and buy white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Don't rely on your fine clothes to put you on the mat. Come to me for true clothing. And come to me for salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Don't rely on your medical prowess, your ability to fix people's sight. Come to me so that you can truly see. Right? True riches, true clothing, true sight. Where do we find them? Not in this world, friends, not in ourselves, not by looking inwards, but only looking outwards to Jesus. Because our biggest need, bigger than house prices coming down, right? bigger than the next stage of your career, bigger than the relationship that you're yearning for, uh, bigger than all of these things is our need for forgiveness. Our need for forgiveness from the God that we have rejected, rebelled against, offended and disgusted. I know those are big words, but remember Daniel's first words potentially to Joel and Emma, I don't need you. I hope those aren't really the words. I don't need you. Those words are horrendously offensive to the God who lovingly created us. And the judgment for those things is death, right? If we say to God, I don't need you, essentially, in a way... He will give us what we think, right? Okay. So you want an eternity without me, without the blessing of my presence and the presence of my blessing. Well, friends, that's called hell. Poor, pitiable, blind, naked, wretched. That's what we have to look forward to if we think we don't need God. However... God, in His love, brought forgiveness through Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus to die on the cross. As sinners were on a collision course with this holy God that they had said, I don't need you, He put Jesus between to be our substitute. See, when Jesus died on the cross... He became what we are, wretched, pitiable, blind, poor, naked. He took that clothing, as it were, upon himself. Our, our wretched, sin-soaked clothing was placed upon him. He took hell for us. He took the judgment of God for us on the cross so that we can go free. And now, by trusting in Jesus... And I want you to immerse yourself in this truth, okay? Uh, to take the metaphor of water, drink this down. This is what you need. Uh, Jesus came to die for sinners like you and me. Uh, and what it means is, what do we receive? Riches, clothing, salve for our eyes. That's what Jesus says to Laodicea. True riches, the riches of God's kindness, right? Imagine, 
if King Charles, the King of England, arrived on a helicopter this afternoon on your front lawn, like, wah, 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 there he is, okay? And he comes out of the helicopter and he makes a royal pronouncement. He says, Mark, I'm going to spend all of the riches at my disposal, all of the time I have left in my life, being as kind as possible as I can be to you. Right? <laughs> now, that's, that's the king of France. No, it's not the king of France. The king of England. That's King Charles. He was a King Charles of France, I'm pretty sure. Imagine God, the king of the universe, saying that same thing to you. Friends, he does <laughs> through Jesus Christ. This is the riches of God's kindness, forgiveness, and then blessing, the blessing of his presence for eternity. Instead of uh, judgment, which we deserve for our self-sufficient disobedience, we find kindness, mercy, forgiveness, the riches of it. And then when we trust in Jesus' death and resurrection, what else do we receive? True clothing, riches, but clothing as well. Our shame, our guilt is taken away. Our sin-stained clothing, worn by Jesus on the cross, dealt with. Instead, then, he clothes us with his righteousness. See yourself as God does. If you are clinging to Christ in faith, you are not a sinner anymore. You are seen by God as an innocent child of God, pure, redeemed. And if we trust in Jesus' death and resurrection, what else do we receive? Sight. The ability to see God as he is. The beauty of God, our creator and our savior. He opens our eyes by the spirit so that we might see him. No longer someone who, who we can ignore or dismiss or forget about. The glorious creator of all, the holy one, the one who's in a, a league of his own who's perfect in all of his attributes, his power, his wisdom, his love, his kindness, and we can go on. And then we can say with the psalmist, as we see and know this God, this is from Psalm 16, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to the grave, to hell. You will... Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand pleasures forevermore. When we see God for who he is, that's what we receive. In our poorness of spirit, our blindness to reality, our nakedness in sin, our wretchedness, our pitifulness, our living like we don't need him, this is Jesus' invitation, friends. Come to him. Come to him. And he offers, come and buy these things from me, knowing we have nothing in our pockets. <laughs> Just come and trust him. And then following on from trusting him, verse 19, we receive a different, uh, another step to take. Uh, he says, those whom I love are approved discipline. And that's all we've heard so far. This is the loving counsel and approval of God. So be zealous and repent. Friends, God loves us too much to simply leave us chasing things that will not ultimately satisfy us, that will ultimately leave us insecure, insufficient. Instead, 
he pursues us through Jesus and says, come to me that you will be satisfied and secure in me alone. Repent. Chuck a yui, kids. That's what that means. Repent. Chuck a yui. Chuck a U-turn. Turn around. Come and trust in Jesus. Repent of your self-sufficiency. And just as we start to get our heads around that, just as we start to get it, in verse 20, we hear a knock at the door. Behold, says Jesus, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Remember those lines? Famous painting, Jesus standing at heart's door. Remember, this is written to Christians. It applies to non-Christians. If you're here and, and you're not a Christian, then of course, Jesus is inviting you in the same way, but there is a particular gravity in that this is an invitation to Christians. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And perhaps you haven't heard him knocking because the music of the good life in your little house is turned up super duper loud. <laughs> Or maybe you haven't really, you have heard him knocking, right? But, but the busyness and the, the rush of trying to live your self-sufficient life has made you just keep saying, just a minute, just a minute to Jesus at the door. Well, the invitation here is just come and fling the door open and Jesus is going to walk right in. He wants to be at the center of your life, friends. That's the imagery here as he comes to eat. Eating in the ancient world was not just a little, hey, drop by and pick up a little, you know, uh, microwave meal to take home. No, you come in, you prepare the meal together, you do life together, you spend time together, you talk about life together, you stay long into the night. That's the picture here. Jesus is saying, I want to come and be intimately at the center of your life, not just someone that you turn to when things go hard, not just something, someone you think about when you're at church, but one at the very center. Because self-sufficiency, as we've seen, only ever fails us. But Christ alone gives us the riches of God's kindness, the clothing of a new righteous identity, eyes to see and worship and enjoy God in all of his beauty. Because here's the promise. We'll finish on this. Verse 21. The one who conquers. The one who presses on with Jesus at the center of their life, clinging to him in faith, continually repenting of their self-sufficiency. That one, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me. There's the picture of intimacy. There's the picture of union and connection. Sit with me where? On my throne. You will not be useless for God's purposes in eternity, friend. You will be so useful not because God needs you, but he, he gives you this role, this authority to sit with Jesus on his throne. As he also conquered and sat down with his father on his throne. You'll be in the presence of your God. Full of joy, full of God's kindness, full of purpose for eternity and all that God has in store. So what do you need to do today to make sure that you'll be there? Be honest about the condition of your faith. Look honestly at the cause. Is it self-sufficiency? Turn earnestly to Jesus for the cure in faith and repentance.
open the door to the one you truly need. I'm going to give us a moment to reflect on that. And, and just to help us, I've got here a bit of a summary of what we've heard from the seven letters of Revelation. Each of these are things that, that might shape the way that you repent to Jesus this morning. And there are ones here that maybe are shaped more towards those of you who are, um, are growing in the faith, who are going forward, but you need to continue. And there are things here that Jesus shapes towards those who really need to take a big step. I'm going to give you a moment to reflect, and then we'll share in communion. Our holy creator God, we thank you that you condescend, that you step down to, to talk to us, that by the Spirit you open hearts and minds, and I pray that you would do that in our midst this morning. For those, Lord, who don't know you, I, I pray that they would hear this invitation and, and would, uh, at one level, consider who it is that is speaking to them, but, but at another would simply turn to you in faith and repentance. And Lord, for those of us this morning who've needed to hear um, that though uh, we are followers of Jesus and claim to be Christians, there is change that needs to happen. I pray, Lord, that as you um, command us, you also enable us. Everything you command, you enable. And so enable them, strengthen them, Lord, to, to turn and change what needs to, to change. I pray that if there's a tough conversation to have, if there's a, a thing that needs to be put out of their life, if there's uh, something that just needs to be altered, Lord, that you would equip them to do that. Thank you, Lord, for, for your presence with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.